All right, well, our topic for this conference, the Gospel of Christ in the Old Testament. The Gospel of Christ in the Old Testament. And you will see on page 10 of these notes an introduction to this topic. I'm going to hit the, these topics and paragraphs very quickly, highlight them, and refer to the scriptures as need be from point to point. But later in the message, the sermon this morning, and later in the conference, we'll go into various scriptures and explain them in greater detail. When we talk about the gospel of Christ in the Old Testament, we have to ask the question, did the saints of the Old Testament believe in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life? Did they believe in the death and resurrection of Christ? Did they believe in the gospel? The gospel that is proclaimed in the Bible. Did they believe in this for their own forgiveness of sins and for their own eternal life? Did they have any concept of Jesus dying and rising from the dead and forgiveness of sins based on faith in Christ and eternal life as a result of that? Did they know anything about it? Did they believe this? From the biblical evidence below, it will be argued that the answer is yes. It's a definite yes. However, many people answer no because they believe in progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is a concept or a method of interpretation of the Bible that says that there are many or different ways of salvation, different gospels throughout the Bible. And so Christ is not the only way of salvation throughout all of history. There are at least two or three, and in some cases there are many more ways of salvation throughout history. What I will argue, based on Scripture, is that there's only one way of salvation from Adam until the end of the world, from creation until the consummation of this universe. Only one way of salvation. To give you an example of a stated, open declaration of progressive revelation and what we are dealing with, I have this paragraph here. It is cited from a seminary in Dallas, Texas, Dallas Theological Seminary. This is what they believe, this is what they teach. Quote, We believe that it has always been true that without faith it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11:6, and that the principle of faith was prevalent in the lives of all the Old Testament saints. However, we believe that it was historically impossible that they should have had as the conscious object of their faith the incarnate crucified Son, the Lamb of God, John 1.29. And that it is evident that they did not comprehend, as we do, that the sacrifices depicted the person and work of Christ. We believe also that they did not understand the redemptive significance of the prophecies or types concerning the sufferings of Christ, 1 Peter 1.10-12. Therefore, we believe that their faith toward God was manifested in other ways, as is shown by the long record in Hebrews 11, 1 to 40. We believe further that their faith thus manifested was counted unto them for righteousness. Romans 4, 3, Genesis 15, 6, Romans 4, 5 to 8, and Hebrews 11, 7. Unquote. So this is a very clear declaration that there is not one gospel throughout the whole Bible, but there are at least two or several gospels throughout the Bible. We will see in time that their citation of a few of these verses, such as John 1.29, 1 Peter 1.10-12, and Hebrews 11.1-40, these verses are taken out of context. 
These verses actually do not prove their point, but these verses undermine their point. For example, John 1.29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist says of Christ to the crowds, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look over there. There is the Lamb of God and He's the one who's taking away the sin of the world. Now how is a lamb useful? A lamb is useful if it is an unblemished lamb, an animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. It is useful for the spiritual benefit of the worshiper if it's an unblemished sacrifice. That is, it's not a blind or lame animal. And that represents perfection or sinlessness. And John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. If he's calling him the Lamb of God, Jesus must be sinless, perfect, holy, unblameable. And he's only going to be spiritually useful to the worshiper, the one who has faith in him, if he dies as a perfect lamb. So here, before the death of Christ, John the Baptist is preaching the death of Christ and telling people to believe in that death. And similarly, 1 Peter 1, 10-12 in Hebrews 11, we'll see later, these passages do not, absolutely do not support this assertion. They actually undermine this assertion, just as John 1, 29 does. Now, let's look at some further points of the, the biblical evidence. Page 10. Biblical evidence for the saints of the Old Testament believing in Christ. There is only one true God. The Bible declares from the beginning to the end of Scripture, there's only one true God. There aren't two or three or 333 million true gods. There's only one true God. If there's only one true God, we cannot have any misconceptions of this one true God. And we cannot assert that there's two or three or people don't need to know this, this true God for their salvation. Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Eternal life consists in this. And he didn't mean just between the period of the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church. He didn't mean it that way. He meant throughout history. There's only one true God, and if we're going to have eternal life, we must know who that true God is. Next, there is only one true Christ. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, 24, that many false prophets and many false Christs will arise and will mislead many. Many will arise and mislead many. People have various conceptions and misconceptions of Christ. They think Christ is this way or that way. They don't know his true identity. They don't know his true character. They don't know his true purpose in his ministry. Why did he come into the world? Why did he die on the cross? Why did he rise from the dead? If we have misconceptions about these things, then we don't adhere, we don't believe in the true Christ. Next, there is only one way of salvation. The Bible clearly declares there's only one way of salvation in the gospel of Christ from the time of Adam until the end of the world. Only one way. We know John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4, 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And even Isaiah declares this, Isaiah 45, 22. Even in the Old Testament, he says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. 
And to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Now that is quoted by Paul the Apostle in Philippians 2 as a reference to Christ. Every knee will bow, Isaiah preached. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That there's no other God, no other Savior. Then it says, there is only one true gospel from the time of Adam until the end of the world. I have stressed this point that there's one salvation. Now, say one gospel. When we talk of salvation, we're talking about the gospel. When we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about salvation. We're not talking about irrelevant issues or tangential issues when we say salvation and gospel. We're, no, we're talking about the same thing in different words. The Bible uses many words. So there's only one true gospel. We will see from Galatians 1, 6 to 10, that Paul pronounces a curse upon anyone, whether an angel from heaven or we, that is Paul or any of his companions, any of the missionaries that went to Galatia, if they preach a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed, he says. Galatians 1, 6 to 10. And... This point about from Adam until the end of the world. One of our sessions, evening sessions, the one that is this evening, will be on this subject. From Adam until Abraham, how were they saved? What did they know of God? Did they know of Christ? Did they believe in the gospel? Those who did believe, did they believe in the gospel from the time of Adam until Abraham? So we will delve into Adam, uh, Abel, Noah, and a couple of others. So this is the question. And the Bible clearly will say that there's only one gospel from Adam until the end. Next point, to believe in the gospel is to believe in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. People define the gospel differently and they do so in contrast or in contradiction to what the Bible says the gospel actually is. We cannot say the gospel is just good news and then leave that good news to be vague and indefinite. When we say the gospel is good news, and it is good news, that's what the word means, we have to know what is that good news? What is it? And does it change over time? Does it change from book to book of the Bible? Or is it the same? Is it one and the same? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you which also you receive, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What he had made known, he's making known to the Corinthians again, verse 1, Verse 2, and this is the gospel that saves them if they hold fast to it, if they really cling on to it and believe it, unless they believed in vain. That is, they could have a temporary, fickle kind of faith that lasts a day or two or a week or a month or a year, and it doesn't uh, persist, it doesn't last, it doesn't persevere. And if they have that kind of faith, they believed in vain. It's not a true, lasting faith. Then he says what the gospel is, verses 3 and 4. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. And Galatians 1 says he received it by a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught Paul personally the gospel. And he says, this is what I deliver to you. This is what I preach to you. Christ 
died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The scriptures are the scriptures of the Old Testament. The scriptures he's talking about are the scriptures of the books of Genesis to Malachi in our Old Testament. He says that in those scriptures, I explained them to you and showed you that Christ, Messiah, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, he's there in the Old Testament and the prophets predicted that he would die for our sins, be buried and be raised on the third day. All according to the scriptures. What God prophesied through the prophets is now fulfilled. And this is what we announce to you. So that this is the gospel. To believe in Christ's death and resurrection. Next point. Christ and his apostles repeatedly assert that the Old Testament contains this gospel. They repeatedly assert this uh, fact that the Old Testament contains this gospel. Let's see. Luke 22:37 Luke 22:37 For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me and he was classed among criminals for that which refers to me has its fulfillment Notice there and he was classed among criminals for that which refers to me has its fulfillment He's quoting a verse from Isaiah 53, 12. The famous passage of Isaiah chapter 53 that is elaborate in describing the death and resurrection of Christ. And he says, that which refers to me, that is Christ, has its fulfillment. He did not say it first referred to Isaiah or it first referred to Josiah or Jeremiah or it first referred to the nation of Israel and now it refers to me. No. What he's saying is Isaiah was pointing to Christ, prophesying of Christ, and what he said would happen is now happening. That was the point in quoting Isaiah. I said this is a repeated assertion. Let's look at Luke 24. Luke 24 and verse 25. Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. These two men on the road to Emmaus, they are perplexed. They don't understand what has just happened. And they don't understand and believe that Jesus has just risen from the dead. And so they're explaining, recounting the events of Jerusalem to Christ. And Christ says to them, in response, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe. You are foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. This should not be perplexing to you. This should not be a surprise to you. You should not be doubtful and scratching your heads about this. You should know that throughout all the prophets of the Old Testament, from Moses to Malachi, throughout the Old Testament, all this truth is there. It's there page after page after page after page. And it's so clearly there that and the purpose of God for our salvation is so necessary. He says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? If God ordains and plans a way of our salvation, then it must happen that way. 
If he says it repeatedly from Moses to Malachi, it must happen that way. There's no negotiation. There's no compromise. There's no different way, other way, better way, higher way, man's way. There's nothing like that. It's God's way. And he must suffer these things and enter into his glory. Suffering and then enter into his glory, that is his resurrection, his ascension, his session in heaven, his intercession for us, his second coming, the day of judgment, and his eternal reign. All of this relates to his glory. And Jesus is saying, all of this is in the Old Testament. And he proves it to them, verse 27. He begins with Moses, that is the book of Genesis. He begins with Moses and with all the prophets. That is from Moses to David, to Isaiah, to Malachi, and all the other ones in between, he went through those prophets and explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Verse 44. He doesn't meet all of them at one time. So in verse 44, with a few of them, he says, and he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And verse 46, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Again and again and again, whether Christ or his apostles are asserting that all of this is already in the Old Testament. It is abundantly supplied in the Old Testament. Further, page 11. Even before the resurrection of Christ. Now I say before the resurrection of Christ because if we can prove that the people, the believers, and even some of the unbelievers, if they knew that Jesus was preaching his death before his death and resurrection, then it was not something that they kept a secret. It was not something that they kept in a dark and secret corner. They didn't do that. They openly talked about this. So, even before the resurrection of Christ, Christ and many others expected Christ to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. They expected Christ to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. Look, for example, at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 and 68. Luke 1, 67. And his father Zacharias, that is the father of John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. Notice there, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, so it's not his human wisdom. And he's prophesying, that is, it's ordained by God to predict the future and to explain the future through this holy man, Zacharias. And what does he say? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has visited us and accomplished redemption. That is, John the Baptist and Jesus. John was the forerunner of Christ. John would preach Christ, and then Christ would come, and Christ would preach and fulfill everything that was written in the Old Testament. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Verse 70. As he spoke from the mouth of his holy prophets, these things will happen. Verse 76. 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
that is John the Baptist, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Zacharias says about his son John the Baptist that he's a prophet. You will go before as a forerunner, as a prophet of the Most High, and before the Lord. The Lord is the Most High. The Most High is the Lord. And who is the Lord that was there who had a forerunner preaching before he preached? Jesus Christ. And this is what Zacharias is saying. And it was not a secret. It was not kept a secret when Zacharias prophesied these things. Now, we may say, well, that was Zacharias. He was a priest, and he was in the temple, and so he must have known many things, but the common people, they didn't know anything. Well, let's look at John 4. John 4, verse 25. John 4, we have an ignoble woman, a, a woman of ill repute here, that is the woman of Samaria, who had had five husbands, and the man that she was with was not her husband. We know this passage. It's a common passage where this dialogue occurs between Jesus and this woman at the well. So you wouldn't expect this woman to know very much. But look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. Is that clear? Jesus claims to be the Christ. And she says, I know that Messiah is coming. I know that the Christ is coming. I know that this one is coming. And when he comes, he's going to expose everything, like declare all things to us. We're going to know so much that we did not know in the past. That's, this means she knew the Old Testament predicted all this. She knew this. Another example, John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha. The two sisters of Lazarus. And Jesus was in this passage at this point about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had been dead four days. So Jesus dialogues with uh, Martha on this. Verse 23. John eleven twenty-three. Jesus said to her, Your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha says, this is a common woman. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. On that day of judgment, that future day after the Lord returns, after his second coming, he will raise people from the dead. And I know that my brother Lazarus will rise again that day. Well, how does she know this? She knew this based on the Old Testament and confirmation about what John the Baptist was preaching and what Jesus was preaching. She knew all these things even before Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus answers in 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed, past tense, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Just like the woman of Samaria in chapter 4, she says, I know you are coming into the world and I know who you are. I know your identity, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
And that because of you, there will be a day of resurrection. And my brother will rise on that day. I know all these things already. Next point. Also, before the resurrection of Christ, the gospel itself was proclaimed. The gospel itself was proclaimed before the resurrection of Christ. Example, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus preaches the gospel even before he dies and rises from the dead. He's preaching the gospel. He's calling it Mark and Jesus here preaching the gospel of God and the kingdom of God. Same thing. Repent and believe in the gospel. Same thing. These can be equated. Gospel of God, kingdom of God, gospel, same thing. Just expressed in different ways for us to understand the various aspects of this truth. Then, we have the, in the Old Testament, next point, the Old Testament actually calls the Messiah or the Christ the, or the Anointed One, all of these terms, by the way, mean the same thing. Messiah, Christ, Anointed One, take your pick, they all mean the same thing. Messiah comes from a Hebrew word, Christ comes from a Greek word, and Anointed One comes from the translation of both the Hebrew and Greek words. It's the same it's the same name or the same concept, individual, we are speaking of. Let's look at an example in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 10. This, this is the song of Hannah. A song of Hannah. Hannah was the wife of a priest, a wife of a priest. So in this case... The priest well taught his wife. The priest well taught his wife because we're going to see what her theology is. This song of Hannah is rich in very biblical and rich theology that is true throughout Old and New Testaments. She was a very godly woman. We can tell from this song. But notice in 1 Samuel 2, the people do not have a king. They will not have a king until chapters 10 to 12. And their first king will be King Saul. So at this point, they're not griping and clamoring for a king. That's not on their minds. They're not looking for an earthly king so that they can be like all the other nations. They're not asking for that. But what does Hannah say? Verse 10. 1 Samuel 2.10 Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them... He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king. And will exalt the horn of his anointed one. His anointed one or Christ or Messiah. Here, this is the Lord that is God the Father. Will judge the ends of the earth. And God the Father will give strength to God the Father's king. My king that I have installed upon, uh, upon Zion, my holy mountain, from Psalm 2, verse 7, that he has given strength to his king and exalts the horn of his anointed one. God's king and God's anointed one are referring to the same person. In parallel fashion here in verse 12. 
and exalting the horn, that's an expression of have, uh, the animal like the ram having a horn, and a strong horn that he uses to m manage his way and, and work his way and get his way and because he's powerful and more powerful than those without the horn. So the horn is a symbol of power and strength and is a synonym for the strength in the previous line. This is God the Father giving strength and power to his king, his anointed one, that is Jesus Christ. She knows about this. The Bible uses these words like this in the Old Testament. Furthermore, other names of Christ are in the Old Testament, such as shoot, stem, root, and branch. Shoot, stem, root, and branch. Example, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. Verse 1. Isaiah 11, 1. As we read this passage, ask yourself the question, who is he describing? Could Isaiah in any way be describing himself? Could he in any way be describing some other person? Or is he explaining and describing Christ himself? Let's see. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Now who is Jesse? The father of David. The father of David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see. Nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Verse 1, shoot, branch, stem of Jesse, having all of these attributes coming from the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be a righteous judge. He doesn't need anybody to tell him and to inform him. He's going to know, and he's going to be a righteous judge about all conflicts between people. He's going to know, and between people and God. He will know and do everything in righteousness and faithfulness. Until verse 5. And then verses 6 to 9. Who in the world could bring about this kind of peace and harmony so that wild animals and domestic animals are not running from each other and fighting each other and one preying on the other? Who is able to do that and to make the whole earth, and even the, the weaned child will put his hand uh, on the viper's den. The weaned child, the little child who likes to play, will put his hand in the viper's den and he's not going to be harmed. The viper will not be a harmful creature anymore. And the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We don't have that. Has any king throughout history provided this for the whole world, the whole earth? Absolutely not. Even the great potentates of the past have never done this. They've done it temporarily for their own uh, area of the world, but they haven't done it globally. 
There's no kingdom, no nation that has ever done that. And then verse 10, the nations are going to flock to, the nations are going to believe in this root of Jesse. And he will be a signal for the peoples of the world. He is going to be so that everybody believes in him for their eternal resting place, which resting place will be glorious. Nobody else has provided that. It's only a reference to Christ. Next, we also have in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, individuals who encountered Christ, which examples are confirmed by the New Testament. Abraham interacted with Christ before Christ was incarnate. He interacted with uh, Abraham. Christ did. Examples from Genesis 18 and 19. The incident, the precursor to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then during the time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Christ appeared to Abraham and Sarah and told them some things. They interacted and dialogued with Christ. And John, in John chapter 8, 48 to 59, Jesus actually challenges the Jews of his time with this reality. Challenging them because Abraham believed in Christ. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews answered and said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, or was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What's going on there? The Jews know Christ himself. He's not even a 50-year-old man yet. They know how old he is from his appearance. And they know when he was born, about 30 years before. They know all that. So they say, how could you see Abraham who lived 2,000 years before? And how can you say that Abraham saw you and was glad? How can you say all this stuff? You must be crazy or demon-possessed, which they asserted earlier. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Quoting Exodus 13. 3, 14, and 15. Exodus chapter 3, 14, and 15, where God identifies himself to Moses as, I am. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Abraham is not the only example. We have this with uh, Moses and with several others, that Christ appeared to them. So they knew of Christ and believed in Christ. Our next point says that there is evidence of the gospel proclaimed and believed even before the time of Abraham. We will explore this later. We'll explore this this evening. Yes, I will assert that the believers before the time of Abraham, that is Adam and Eve and Abel and Seth, Noah, Enoch, that these men, they believed in Christ. They knew about Christ and they believed in this gospel of Christ. Next, the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the saints knew and believed more than what is written in the Old Testament. This is a very important point. We, we are asserting here that in the Old Testament, the saints, they knew and believed more than what is actually written in the Old Testament. They actually knew more than what is written. Another point, the next point, and you'll see what I'm saying with this New Testament example. Even in the New Testament, the saints of the New Testament also knew and believed 
more than what is written in the New Testament. The saints of the New Testament even knew and believed more than what is actually recorded there in the New Testament. The example that is the, an indisputable example, everybody knows of this example if they have read the New Testament. Notice John 21, 25. At the very end of the book of John, 21, 25. There are also many other things which Jesus did. Which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which would be written. Does that not clearly say that Jesus did many, many other things and they're not written in the book of John. They're not even written in the, in the whole of the New Testament. And he's saying that there is a, such a, an enormous amount of things he said and did that even the world wouldn't be able to contain the books. Of course, he's using hyperbole, but at least th there could be a thousand books written or 10,000 books written, but we don't have 10,000. We only have 27 of the New Testament. And he's saying there's many more that were not written. So the point is, if the Old Testament doesn't have everything written which they knew, and if the New Testament doesn't have everything which they knew, why do we suppose that they knew much less than what is written? Why is the, there in our interpretation the assumption, a false assumption, that they knew less than what is written? Why not give them the other way and say, no, they knew more than what is written. And if they knew more than what is written, whatever was written is written there for a purpose in order for it to be inscribed in Scripture in due time the way God wanted it described so that we see prophecies and fulfillments. And everything is explained in that way. So, in summary, whoever is saved from the time of Adam to the end of the world is saved by grace, through faith in Christ, because of the Holy Spirit, and by means of the Word of Christ. By means of the Word of Christ and because of the Holy Spirit. This is the way salvation happens at all times. And then a few more minor points. Though their faith wavered at times, the disciples of the New Testament were believers in Christ and knew that he predicted his death and resurrection. I'm talking especially about the twelve, or eleven of the twelve, that they knew, except Judas Iscariot, they knew and they truly believed in the person of Christ and in the work of Christ in his death and resurrection. Though their faith wavered, just like our faith wavers. Sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes we doubt. And we grow in the faith and we become stronger and stronger. And that's what happened with them. And the next point. Even the enemies of Jesus Christ knew that Christ predicted his death and resurrection. The enemies of Christ knew what he was preaching. Quote, Matthew 27, 63, quote, Sir, they are talking to Pilate. Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I am to rise again. They knew that. He clearly, plainly told them that. And now they're trying to prevent it by consulting Pilate's permission. 